0: Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet-Karnak. So we're bringing you a different kind of conversation today. Uh, Okazue Bell is a high school senior, an activist, and a social entrepreneur. A Nigerian American. He is the founder of FiduTam, a SIM card-based application that provides microloans to low-infrastructure and unbanked communities, and the inventor of something called WeArm, which is a low-cost 3D-printed human-like prosthetic arm for below-the-elbow amputees. So we thought it would be fun to introduce you to him as well. So we're going to have a broad conversation with him about his experience, how he sees the world, and we'll see where it goes.
1: So Okizwe, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism today. Uh, And it's pretty impressive how a 17-year-old, just barely 17, has the cv that you do clearly you don't take any time to sleep or uh or or eat you're just working the whole time and tom has already introduced all of the different areas in which you've been active okay but today we wanted to invite you to focus not necessarily on prosthetics where you've done such a brilliant job or in fact even on your financial um, SIM card application, but rather because we are in the climate space and we know that you've been to at least one COP. I don't know if you've been to several. We wanted to ask you from your perspective, how do climate change efforts look like to you? Yes, we're far behind. Yes, we have these huge, huge heat waves now raging across the world. What do you make of that? What do you make of the contrast between the impacts of climate change and the insufficient efforts that are uh, currently underway? How how do you bring those two realities together?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really difficult sort of topic to reconcile because we're seeing so much upward trending progress in terms of technology, discourse surrounding climate, engagement within the climate justice sectors. Then we're seeing plastic pollution particles ending up in pregnant women's placentas. We're seeing things like the Willow Project. We're seeing devastating environmental concerns, especially when it comes to the global south. Um, And so for me, what I'm personally seeing is that Right now, a lot of the work in climate is existing in sort of a vacuum, where we have a ton of discourse, we have a ton of technological developments, we have so many different types of conferences and sort of engagements surrounding that area. But the issue is that instead of being disseminated to the people who need them most and having their impacts realized more broadly, they're instead just soaking up a ton of media attention, resources, and conversations that aren't necessarily escaping what I like to call that climate vacuum. And so I think a huge problem is that because of the fact that a lot of the current efforts in the climate space, including some activistic efforts, are being concentrated in this sort of monolith, if you will, it's becoming very difficult for us to see that action actually turn into results. For example, with COP, when I attended COP, it was was an amazing conference. There were so many different people, a lot of great conversations, but one of the most difficult things... To do was to get people to sort of go from that conversation to the next step of actually implementing or creating action. So for example, adding Gen Z to their advisory boards, very simple things that I think would have some sort of actionable change or impact. And then when I'm on that advisory board, how do I push them to, you know, bring their um, products to a broader audience or? advertise and make campaigns for indigenous people or for people in the global south or for young individuals, people from sub-Saharan Africa. There's so many, I think, issues when it comes to actual climate penetration in terms of getting people to take real action that results in you know tangible change. And that's one of the biggest and hardest things that I've had uh, difficulty doing especially as a young person who's, you know, not a a climate scientist or an expert in this field, um, really trying to get people to, like they say, go from apathy to action, but even beyond that, go from action to impact. What What an interesting perspective.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. As this issue has become more urgent, people have become more concerned, understandably, and that's led to a sort of breathless anxiety that people are bringing to this conversation. And one of the observations that we've made before on this podcast is that everybody is sort of deciding to do 10 times more of whatever they were doing before, which could be a good thing. But what that's leading to is that just at the moment when we all should be coming together around shared objectives, we're all kind of drifting away and being more convinced that the way that we were previously doing things is the right way, which is leading us... It's, it's preventing this moment of coming together at a critical minute. So I'm just wondering... Your generation is very much associated with a rising level of anxiety, concerns about the future. What types of conversations are you seeing that counteract that, that begin to get people of your generation, your way of seeing the world more engaged, yes, realising the urgency of the issue, but not allowing that to become a paralysing force and instead becoming a galvanising force for further action? Are there routes through and conversations that you see
2: land and are effective? Yeah, for sure. So I think for me personally, one of the biggest SDGs that I value is the 17th one, partnerships for the SDGs. And this is the one that I believe is also the most heavily overlooked. um, Because in terms of when you're doing work like this, it's a lot easier to remain as sort of an individual, working with a variety of different organizations, like you said, remaining in sort of your your bubble or your circle of competence in terms of how you know you're able to contribute to the climate movement. And then a lot of times that results in you being isolated from so many other amazing efforts that if they were to converge, they would have tenfold impact. And so for me, I think one of the biggest conversations in sort of bridging that gap, especially as a young person, is in working with Lots of youth coalitions sort of connecting them, using myself as the liaison between a variety of different organizations, like having MIT App Inventor talk to the American Lung Association, or having the American Lung Association talk to people at Perfect Day. There's so many sort of types of coordinations that you can make across the climate movement. And because it's a manifold issue, I think that some of the most effective conversations come when you're talking about the impact that you could have in a completely tangential area to the one that you or your organization may be working in. So if there was one call to action that I would give, it would be to consider those far-reaching implications of the work that you're doing. You know, cultured meat doesn't just have implications within the food sector, but it affects our health, public safety. It affects, of course, climate, agriculture, water consumption. Uh, food production, circular economies. Uh, There's so many sort of ways it can be applied and ways in which it could benefit us towards a better sustainable climate future. And so because of that, it's really important that I as an advisor for these companies, I as a young person begin to bridge that gap in terms of communicating the effects and impacts of this technology to a variety of other sectors that may not even realize that what they're doing in actually pertains very greatly to the field that I'm working in. And so I think scientists, researchers, youth coalitions, um, climate activists, we all really do need to have that sort of coalescing of our our work and our efforts. Um, And even beyond that, I think that at conferences like COP, that type of intersection should really be encouraged. I think a lot of times we get lost in this like trade show-esque conference which results in, once again, every country is sort of isolated to their small box. We have Qatar in one, we have Nigeria in another, we have the US box, and then we have like a researcher box, and then we have a a food science box. But really, we shouldn't be segmenting based on our work. We should be segmenting based on the area of climate that we want to target. And a lot of times that can be people from a variety of different lived experiences, a variety of different works, and a variety of different ways that they're contributing to that movement. And so I think if we have more of that encouraged, especially in large public forums like the COP conferences, like general assemblies, um, we'll see way better and more actionable solutions. After all, some of the best products are a result of interdisciplinary collaboration, like the Apples, like the Googles, like the Microsofts. And so if we're going to see those companies for climate, we're also going to need all of these individual actors to come and interplay within creating a solution. So I'll
1: away. let Let me... Um... Let me take you one level deeper into that, because a person stepping into the climate world at this point, as you have, has basically two choices which have already been denoted by Tom. One very justifiable choice is to say, it's too late, this is too complex, no solution here, Uh, and, and pull the sheets over their head and paralyze themselves into doom. You have chosen to do something different. You have chosen not to deny the impacts, but to focus your attention onto the solution space. And as you say, invite people not because of what sector they come from, but rather what is the solution that we want to bring and then bring those people together. Why? why did you make the choice of stepping into the solution space rather than into the doom and gloom
2: space? I think for me personally, it was first that the doomist philosophy is especially harmful for people like myself. I'm Nigerian. I'm a person of color. I'm African-American. And so because of that, the doomist philosophy are typically held by people who sit in a position of privilege. And as a result of that, Saying, oh, we can just throw our hands up in the air oftentimes means that since we're not affected, everyone else who's affected, we don't really care about their problem. I think a big part of that philosophy is actually just people who are apathetic to the movement in the sense that it's not affecting them directly. Like, for example, someone living in, say, Iran, who is experiencing significantly higher temperatures, also some human rights crises as well, they're not going to say, oh, we don't care about climate change, assuming that they're aware of climate change. They would never have that philosophy because they're directly experiencing the effects that it's having on their lives. But then for people like us in the United States who are like, you know, we're not necessarily facing the brunt end of climate change. The we as young people, we do have this moral high ground where we're going to assume the worst of the problem as we grow up. But for most of us, we're just like not really experiencing the effects. We're seeing word on the news, we're seeing like sacrifice zones, but ultimately it's not directly affecting our ability to breathe or our ability to go out and just live our lives normally. And so because of that, we have the privilege of being able to say there's nothing we can do. And I feel like people are only able to say that when the problem is isolated from them to an extent that they feel like there's no effect, this problem doesn't actually exist. And so I think the the Dumas philosophy actually is very deeply tied to people who also don't believe in climate change, who you know, there are people who don't acknowledge their effects and then there are people who acknowledge the effects and say, there's nothing we can do about it. I think they actually fall under the same umbrella of ignorance in the sense that, you know, you're basically saying the problem doesn't affect me as much. So therefore I don't need to, I don't want to, I don't care to do anything about it. And that's my perspective. And that's why I, as someone who's a part of the demographic, who's being Disproportionately affected. Of course, I may not be feeling effects, but people I know, people in my community are. And so I felt as though, as someone who is interested in science, someone who's going to be pursuing a career in sort of this area, I realized that it's up to me to be able to, you know, do something, give a small shred of my privilege to be able to create some sort of actionable change, impact, push forward solutions. And I felt like the climate space is so saturated with activism but not enough solutions to activism. I think the work that the greta of the world do is absolutely amazing but I think now we need a transition out of that to a space where people are actually advocating for the technological solutions they're advocating for climate education they're advocating for actionable change to be done not just saying these are the people to blame these are the issues happening um, which I think sometimes can reinforce that doomist philosophy. And instead saying, these are the solutions being developed, become an active contributor to the solutions, become an active champion of the solutions, immerse yourself in the science, immerse yourself in the technology. And so that's the stance I've taken. Of course, I'm also kind of biased as someone who's very interested in STEM. I was naturally drawn towards those solutions, but I also think it was for the better.
1: So I conclude, but correct me if I'm wrong, that your sense is that many of the solutions will actually come from the global south because those are the people who are most affected and who, at least if I apply your way of thinking, which I love, those are the ones who will be most interested and most motivated in moving into the solution space rather than the global north that is too comfortable
2: right now. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that sentiment. And I think If larger companies are also able to collaborate with the Global South, provide funding, provide infrastructure in areas that may not have it, um, I think it will be great. You know, the Global South is very well equipped in terms of their economic potential, their physical potential in terms of like the land that they're living in or their geophysical potential, I'd just say. And I think also we're already seeing some amazing solutions being developed. We're seeing solar panels that can be integrated into windows. We're seeing people create lamps from salt water. These are technologies that are born out of necessity. And a lot of us in the U.S. don't have that necessity. So when it's in countries that do, that already have this amazing mind and economic potential, there's so much that can sort of come out of that. And so definitely agree that a lot of these solutions will be spurred out of the global south. And hopefully it'll also result in an equalization in our perception and integration of global south innovation technology and infrastructure as well.
0: I, I love what you're saying here, because I think that, um, you know, there, there's also in, in my work, I speak with a lot of people who are trying to find solutions to the climate crisis in the global South. And what I often hear is people say, we, we don't want to be seen just as victims of this terrible thing. We want to be seen as entrepreneurs and innovators who are on the front lines of a challenge. And we want to be able to solve it. and We want to go at this with energy and determination. And I love your characterization there of this doomist narrative as actually a little bit sort of privileged and, and we need to kind of get over that. Like we need to get over a lot of privilege in order to see mm-hmm. the world as it is in front of us rather than clouded by the privilege that we inherit. Um, we sometimes can't do much about that. But what we can do is we can say, I'm gonna see through that. I'm gonna see the challenge and I'm gonna to respond to it in a productive way that's focused on solutions. Um, it's very refreshing hearing you talk about it. So thank you for, for the energy you're throwing at this. Thank um, you. That's great, yeah.
2: Of course.
1: We would love to talk to you at length and further and at length, Um, but we do have to wrap this up and we have a question that we ask everyone. If you've heard the podcast, you already have a little, you've already had a little thinking time ahead. But if you haven't, here is our question. Our podcast is entitled Outrage and Optimism because we think that we have to continue being outraged about how little has been done and optimistic about those solutions that are underway. And we believe that both our sentiments and energies are important. So we would love to hear from you, Okozuwe. What are you most outraged about in the climate space? What are you most outraged about? And what's what what are the rays of light? What are you most optimistic about?
2: I think I'm most outraged about the way that the media has been sort of perceiving and covering climate activists. I think not enough visibility has been given to the solutions of the people on, on the back end, the people fighting for climate on ground. Um, and I think a lot of times the solutions are, or sorry, a lot of times the work And this sort of Lone Star hero narrative has been attributed largely to the climate activists at the most conferences, the ones who are the most visible, um, the ones who, you know, sort of have the, the best and most engrossing presence. And, you know, for media, sometimes it does make sense. You know, they want someone who's marketable, who people will gravitate towards. But I also think it's just as vital to really show that this is a collaborative effort. I think too often the media likes to create, like I said, this lone star narrative where it's just one singular person that is carrying the weight of the climate crisis on their back um, when that obviously isn't the case. So I think I'm most outraged about um, the public perception of of climate activism and, and climate change. but. I'm also optimistic because of the fact that it's being covered at all, because of the fact that there are so many people that are so engaged and engrossed within the space that the media has something to write about. Because of the fact that there's so many scientists sort of working on the front ends to, you know, create amazing, amazing solutions from cellular agriculture to sustainable farming to carbon sequestration. Um there's so much technology that's emerging that keeps me hopeful. The Forbes 30 under 30 list this year was. Chock full of sustainable tech solutions, um, which I think is absolutely amazing. And so, to see that visibility on both ends makes me both outraged but also optimistic.
0: How wonderful to hear his perspective! What did what did you take from that?
1: Yeah, very very articulate, very compelling. And um, I, I was. Uh, Uh, Obviously, I was really taken by his so clearly putting out that those who are in doom and gloom are not stepping up and that there is a big degree of privilege in that. (laughs) Honestly, Tom, those two things, I have thought about it, but I have never heard it expressed so clearly that the doom and gloom is to a large extent, an extension of privilege. That's a pretty revolutionary concept right there.
0: It's revolutionary, but I mean, of course, if you're right facing the sharp end of something, you don't have the luxury of giving up on it, right? It's like, well, I've got to deal with this because it's right here. That's a very sophisticated and nuanced Mm. perspective for somebody so young to come up with, right? Because you have to kind of have been around a bit and seen. so. That was great. And and how wonderful to have someone who's just going for it with solutions and things they're passionate about. Yeah. Fantastic.
1: I was I was wondering whether his, he, as he said, he was very attracted to STEM at a very early age. And I wondered whether that actually seeds the solution attitude if you're attracted to STEM. <laughs>
0: You're you're problem a problem solver. solver. yeah. So that might you're be part a of it. Solver. Yeah, you're sort of saying, How do we get through this issue and solve yeah. this challenge? That's a really interesting but, thought. But actually. I yeah. think he's
1: also sensitive to the fact that it, it's not about fixing climate, right? There's no technological fix about right. it. Um, yes, technology is a big part, but it's not the only, the only part. So I appreciate that maybe his problem solving attitude is leading but it's not the only part he he does recognize all of the other um intersectionalities as uh as that de- generation calls it no quite impressive i don't know what were you doing when you were 17 yeah. tom
0: not not that nothing anywhere near that impressive or even impressive at all i can't really remember what i was doing but it was probably more involved music and my friends than anything com- you know sort of constructive for the world yeah Okay, so I think that's it. Wrapped up for this week, and we'll see you as ever next week. Bye. Bye.